Policing Australia. The official podcast of the Australian Police Journal. Welcome to the podcast, I'm Jason Burns. In episode 14, we heard from Mark Tedeschi, the senior prosecutor involved in two high-profile murder cases. In this episode, we're going to hear from the police officer who led the investigations in those cases, retired Detective Chief Inspector Dennis Bray. Dennis has written an article about the investigations titled Crueler Than Murder. It is the feature article of the September 2022 issue of the Australian Police Journal. After writing the article, Dennis agreed to talk about aspects of the investigations. Before playing that interview, just a quick reminder of what occurred. In May 1997, Mrs Kerry Whelan went missing in Parramatta, Sydney. She was last seen leaving her vehicle at a hotel. Subsequent examination of CCTV footage would show she got into another car outside the building. The following day, the family received a ransom note in the mail. Police investigation soon centred on a Bruce Burrell, a man known to the victim and to her husband. During the police investigation, Burrell also presented as a suspect in the 1995 disappearance of Mrs Dorothy Davis, who went missing near her eastern Sydney home. Through his then-wife, Burrell was known to Dorothy. Despite their best efforts, police were unable to find either the women or locate their bodies. Burrell denied killing them, but after a protracted series of court cases lasting several years, he was convicted of both murders. In 2016, Burrell died in jail, having steadfastly refused to admit to the murders or tell authorities where he had placed the bodies of his victims. Recently, after his article was published, I sat down with Dennis Bray at the Sydney Police Centre in Sydney to talk about aspects of the case. G'day Dennis, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You had an extensive career as a detective. How did you find yourself involved in these cases? Uh, well, uh, 1997, I was uh, attached to the Northwest Region Homicide Squad and I'd not long been put in as the team leader of the unit. And prior to that, I'd been the homicide there for four years doing uh, homicide investigations in the Northwest Region, which goes, which went all the way up to Burke, uh, Armadale, Tamworth. And prior to that, uh, I'd had 12 months at the armed hold-up unit there. Been CI work, criminal investigation work in the western suburbs around Cabramatta, Blacktown areas. And then prior to that, the Drug Law Enforcement Bureau as a senior constable for a number of years, for about four years. And that was in the city and also in what we call regional operations, which are out around Fairfield and uh, Parramatta or Flemington area, doing the northwest sector. And yeah. uh, ultimately in 1997, I was at the uh, unit at uh, Northwest. At the time, um, I don't know if you recall, but we were going through a major Royal Commission, which was pretty dramatic, and uh, we were more than halfway through it. But uh, on the 6th of May, uh, Kerry went missing, of course, and uh, her husband subsequently reported uh, Kerry missing on the afternoon, late afternoon, went to Parramatta Police Station. And the officer, of course, uh, took just a standard missing persons report. The matter was, uh, Mr Whelan at the time was concerned, he didn't think anything was being done. And the following day, he started making phone calls to uh, people he, who knew senior police. We got a contacted. Well, I got contacted on the, the following day, the 7th, at around lunchtime from Detective Sergeant Alan Duncan, who was, uh, had been put in charge of the matter. And I went to the police station with another colleague, and he briefed us on the circumstances of the disappearance. I expressed very much uh, my concerns. Um, this woman had $50,000 worth of jewellery. There was a pending trip with her husband that the day before to Adelaide on a business trip and there was nothing to suggest there was anything untowards other than uh, something serious had happened. Had you come across this type of crime before? It's certainly something that doesn't sound like it's common in Australia. No, no that's right. Um, no. 
And uh, I think we've, do, we've got to be in context. So I've started where we were at. That's all we had, her disappearance and those circumstances. I hadn't had a, an experience like this before, but we'd done missing persons and we're always uh, concerned about them and there was things we, we did to make sure we'd try and lo- relocate them or locate them. At the time uh, in New South Wales, there was and the Royal Commission, the regional crime squads couldn't just go into the local area commands. The local area commander was in charge of crime in his area and they had a request assistance. So we were briefed. Uh, I returned to uh, the, the crime squad at Parramatta, which we were within Parramatta, and briefed Detective Inspector Michael Howe, who was the acting commander of the crime squad at the time. A number of things were being undertaken by uh, the Parramatta detectives, the scientific of the car, and arrangements had been made to interview Mr Whelan. Later that evening, Mr Whelan opened the ransom note, and uh, what was outlined in the ransom note uh, uh, set the balloon up, and uh, we were all recalled, and uh, it just went from there. So we, um, back at the uh, Parramatta Police Station, and uh, after reading the ransom note, it was obvious that uh, Mrs Whelan had been taken. There was an obviously ransom, and the, the scary thing was that there were threats that she would die if the rules or the, the instructions weren't completely followed. From that point on, our whole focus was on getting Kerry back alive. Everything we did was based around the fact that it had to be done in a way that uh, it wouldn't be identified that the police were involved or the media had been advised. So all those things came into account. Um, so we had to then uh, build, uh, for want of another word, a, an operation to address the uh, threat and also start managing in a major investigation and building a major investigation. There was a couple of sleepless nights uh, to get it started. And although the ransom note provided seven days, with the, once the ad went in the paper, we, the, we gave us seven days and then we put the ad in the paper and then another three days they said they'd been contacted. We didn't wait for the seven days. We started building the major operation and it was covert. But the first priority, I, I guess, that we, we really looked at was securing the Whelan family in their property. Um, that meant Mr Whelan um, keeping him at the property so that if contact was going to be made, it had to be made there, uh, making sure they were safe. And before we could even do that, we had to then, as we didn't know where the threat was, on the night a number of relatives and friends had gathered at the property, so we had to deal with that. A number of people knew about it, and we undertook their confidence and spoke with them all and uh, asked them to leave the property and maintain silence about what was going on. As you say, it's a very complex and complicated case, and one which is time-critical at the beginning, As a leader or manager in the investigation, what were you thinking about at that stage in terms of not just the crime itself and trying to find the victim, but also how to respond to it? Of course, uh, you can imagine the investigation needed a number of resources, but um, especially human resources of experienced investigators, and they were provided from Parramatta Police Police Area Command and also from the Crime Squad. (coughs) Pardon me. Senior police uh, from headquarters were briefed. It is a huge undertaking, but one of the most important things, priority, apart from the family looking after the family, was to establish an incident room as such and then start gathering, putting systems in place because when I say systems, systems to collect all the information and the action taken, they were important. And as the staff started joining and we were building, my way of looking at who was coming in and their experience and what they brought to the task force, and that becomes important when you start tasking investigators. Uh, there's no point giving it a junior officer. It mightn't be up to that level. But certainly a senior officer could um, 
mentor them and uh, get through. So we we didn't really have that much of a problem with staff because most of the officers that came on board uh, I knew or knew of and uh, most of them are pretty uh, experienced, so we were fortunate in that sense. So that was important because down the track it provided a couple of things. Um, you can research information quickly, cross-reference it, and we were using at the time a system called uh, TIMS, which was the Task Force Information Management System. Uh, later on, uh, many years, Eagle Eye came into New South Wales and that was converted over. It was important because this information, as the investigation evolved, allowed investigators to go through and look at what information they had that might be affecting the job they were being tasked with. It was important that each day they be tasked, uh, they'd be sat down and told what, what their inquiry was. We had uh, morning meetings every morning with the commander, uh, Mick Howe. And then um, as we went along, it was, we had also assigned tasks for uh, media management and uh, Mick Howe, Detective Inspector Mick Howe, he was uh, the senior, he was the commanding officer. He managed that with um, headquarters and the media unit. And there wasn't uh, much media at the beginning because we maintained in a covert role. Uh, and we were able to maintain that number of weeks until finally we went public. Moving up to going public, we had range for a number of media releases so that we could get as much feedback from the public as we could rather than launch it all in one day. Um, and what evolved, we had Mr Whelan talk, we had a pre-recorded video, and then we arranged for a um, mannequin with the clothing curry, and then there was ongoing media releases. So we, we had to catch up because we'd, we'd been uh, silent for so long. In terms of um, the investigation and what we could do and couldn't do, we had to really look at uh, the threat that it would impose on Kerry before we could do. So we couldn't go near suspects as such, but what we did do initially was to... We knew uh, Mr Whelan thought Kerry had had um, um, a hair appointment or a beautician's appointment uh, or a skin appointment, so we identified all those possible scenarios in Parramatta covertly went around, interviewed and conducted some minor inquiries there. Similarly with the Park Royal where she parked that day, we interviewed a number of people there and also obtained all the, all the butts, parking butts for all the people that parked their car there that day and who had stayed at the hotel. We gathered all that. It was a matter of gathering a lot of records. But we, each inquiry was basically risk assessed as to um, carry how it could affect what we were doing. The whole focus of the strike force was to get Kerry back alive. Dennis, you touched on the issue of CCTV footage at the hotel showing Kerry leaving a car, and you covered that in detail in your article, and it's prominently covered in Mark Tedeschi's book as well as being a critical development in the investigation. Would you mind expanding on what was involved in analysing the footage? The reason, uh, in 1998, I went back to check uh, the video recordings of the CCTV. When we first obtained it, just to explain it to you, the, there's about eight cameras in the Park Royal, and they, they run through a multiplexer, which captures everything, of course, and it's changing cameras every couple of seconds or second, couple of seconds, and it bounces around the cam. So we didn't, at that point, were able to isolate it. So what we did, the focus at the, originally was all on Kerry arriving and leaving the Park Royal. And I, for some reason, just one of those things when you don't sleep and you're thinking about it, I couldn't remember anyone telling me whether they looked for... This was before we had a suspect, of course whether anyone had looked to see whether Burrell or anyone else had been inside the hotel prior that we knew about 12 months on. So that was the whole purpose of me going back and viewing the um, tape. 
there was another strike force operating out where we were stationed out of out west. They had a just a basic video player because it was on on videotape these days, and it went frame by frame. They were able to do it frame by frame. So if you can imagine sitting in front of the TV with a video recorder going frame by frame, I followed it from Kerry through, and originally was focusing on the park, like the movements around Kerry. During that time, I saw a, an image on the camera. I think it's been described properly as it's mounted inside the Park Royal and it faces towards a glass door, which is the entry to the old nightclub. And uh, on that glass door, it was empty, no people. The room, the area there was clear. There was uh, an image of a car out on the on the street. And as you move through frame by frame, you could see movement, just like the, how they make a cartoon. And uh, I fell really off the chair. And of course, um, so I went frame by frame, frame and we kept going and we saw Kerry uh, left and then this car pulled away, which was consistent with Burrell's um, Pajero, Mitsubishi two-door Pajero, uh, I call it. It was black and white footage. So then, of course, we extended the search and I went back early hours of the morning when the doors go up, the gates, it took some time, but we uh, identified it, uh, I think it was 9.01, Pajero arrives and it's captured by a camera from inside the foyer area of the Park Royal looking out towards the street and it just sees the car slowly pull up and it captures the well, back half of the car. But significantly in that shot is the wiper blade on the back. When Burrell's car seized, it had rain and there's a wiper blade mark. So it was pretty significant when we found that. So it was difficult. And then later years we were able to isolate all the cameras and, and copy it to video. We did a lot of work around the video. We got to all the cars. We, we went to uh, Mitsubishi Australia. They provided us with, uh, well, we spoke to an engineer and he identified the type of vehicle based on the construction, engineering construction. And then we went and sourced uh, all the Pajeros in that model range that were um, all the owners, warranty owners, and it was something like 1,648 cars Australia-wide. And then, and of course, this was 12 months nearly into the investigation, so then we started to start again. We had a, what we call a mail-out, which was, and a lot of your colleagues at the federal police and states around Australia. It's a great club. We had pro forma statement and also a covering report of what we wanted. We sent it out and what we did, we boxed them all up for say Queensland, sent them to their mail area. Uh, same with all the states and we had a couple of investigators in each state that managed it for us and it was a great response. Um, it took a while but we set up a database with all the information we had and what we're looking for is the, the vehicles were two-tone and what we were trying to do was eliminate all the cars that could possibly be in Parramatta on the day of Kerry's disappearance. And we were focused on uh, Burrell's car because we knew what he had. He'd, he uh, had a bull bar and we were looking for whether they had a bull bar, roof racks, uh, running boards, etc, uh, etc. Et we had this massive mail out and slowly they started drifting back in and then people were saying, well, on the 6th of May we're in Western Australia. So we could really eliminate them. The car was there. So all the states, pretty much. But we, we went to great lengths. We had uh, cars have been sold, so we came back. So we got that information and sent it back out again. I remember we, we got a doctor in um, the Gulf of Mexico on a boat. We faxed it to him and, we, and he responded. And um, there was a, a fellow in New Guinea that owned the car at the time. So there was a fair bit done. And I think at the end of the day, there was about, apart from Burrell's car, there was about four cars that were in in the Parramatta area on the day. So it was an elimination process to strengthen it. What I did is um, sort out a, an expert in black and white monochrome film. We were 
referred to a chap at the ABC uh, in Sydney here. We then did some tests with the original video material and equipment at the Park Royal. We obtained the car that Burrell had in his possession and then we got all the other cars. There was about four or five other cars that we put at Park Royal. We videoed it outside to show... There was two things we wanted to achieve. The first one, to show that the vehicle was pulling away from the first parking space on the uh, curb directly outside the curb directly outside the park roar and that that was that came up exactly what we thought and because of the reflection on the glass door when you look at the glass door it's reverse image outside so the vehicles on the other side of the street appeared to be facing let me get it right here they appeared to be facing east in actual fact they were going west uh, so you had to under, get your head around that so we, re- we videoed it all for what we did outside and then the chap from the ABC, he did his thing with marking a mark on the colour because what was evident when we were looking at the, the video, the different colours that we put through, they come, when they come up in black and white, there was a difference in the reflective value. So a red car come up nearly white and then the different colours were in different shades. So I just thought there might be uh, ample opportunity to you know, build on that to try and get uh, more strength in the evidence, that particular bit of evidence. Anyway, we did that, and he did a lengthy, quite a lengthy report on, on the scientific value, but unfortunately it wasn't admitted because it didn't come up to the rigours of the scientific examination. But we tried, and that's what you can, you can do, just keep trying. So, yeah, it was significant when we found the, um, when we found the video. Uh, it was very important. Mm-hmm. A lot of work went into it. It was 98, and we ended up charging Burrell in 1st of um, April 1999 for Kerry's disappearance and murder. Kidnapping yeah. and murder, and uh, yeah, the reason for the length uh, was because of this particular. We had to get it done for the, the brief. You've mentioned his name a couple of times, Bruce Burrell. How did he appear on the radar? How did he start becoming a suspect, and then how did he start becoming a likely suspect? How it come to light? We had absolutely nothing. We had a ransom note. All the scientific had been done on the ransom note, down to the paper that was printed on uh, fingerprints, DNA. There was nothing. Bernie's fingerprints were on there which is to be expected. On the 7th, we were up and running. On the 8th, Amanda Mitten-Taylor, who was the uh, housekeeper, her mother also worked for the Whelans. They had horses. Uh, they looked after that and the housekeeping, and Amanda looked after the, the children. She came to the investigators and outlined this uh, unusual visit by uh, a fellow by the family friend by the name of Bruce. One thing you've got to be careful of is, uh, at this stage, he's a family friend, and you just don't rush off and do that because there were other people we were looking at who were not really involved, but uh, they could have... We didn't know. They were, they were persons of interest that we were following and keeping an eye on them that were linked to some criminal networks. Anyway, this it was, it was important to eliminate this fellow. We still couldn't go and just run, knock on his door, but we didn't know who Bruce was, so we arranged for Amanda to come into Sydney, the police centre here, and provide us with a face image. She did that. And then uh, she was encouraged to go home and go through the family photos to see if she could find Bruce. And when, when she did that, she identified Bruce Burrell, who would, it was a company photo. Uh, Mr Whelan had had a, a company day at his home for the executive staff, and she picked him out of that photo. Uh, from that point on, we identified Bruce and we started researching this Bruce Burrell because we were still waiting for contact. And it was uh, we found out that he had Mr Whelan told us that he hadn't heard from him since about 1989 
and he, had, he thought he had about 500 acres or knew he had 500 acres down at uh, Bungonia. So we ramped up looking at him as well, but still looking at other, keeping an open mind. I've seen it where people go down to a path and find out that it's not the right path. Anyway, we kept going. So we had all this information on Bruce. As I said, we couldn't go near him and we had the operation ready to go, hoping that someone would make contact. Um, we were well advanced. We later start surveillance. We had a, we had all the surveillance capacity of the New South Wales Police tied up in this inquiry. And we put him down near Bungonia to pick up, follow him if we could. Not Bungonia is a very remote country town down near Goulburn. It got to us, uh, our surveillance police were uh, confronted by locals. We had a cover story and the uh, surveillance police told them what they were doing. They were doing a training exercise, basically, from the academy. We made a decision after that to pull them out further out. It was just so remote. And it's a, it was a, a learning lesson. which we, we knew it was going to be difficult, but we had to try something. We pulled them right out, back out onto the freeway at Maroolan and uh, Goulburn. And they, we know the locals, farmers, were talking about them. Oh, they're, not, they're out there now. They're not in Bungonia. They're right out. And then we later discovered that down there that the local farmers there were there, and it was all pretty remote. They communicated on a radio in their rooms. They had like a CB radio system operating down there. We later found that, but, you know, we did our best with that. Burrell, when he was identified, sorry, Amanda, Amanda Minton-Taylor also told us that he turned up at the house a couple of weeks prior and then Bernie, Mr Whelan, he realised that he'd got a call from Burrell about about a week, seven days prior, on the 7th of April. And he said it was... A call. Originally, he rang him at work and Bernie was busy, couldn't speak to him, and he returned his call later that night from his home. Bernie later related to us that it was um, a call about nothing. I mean, he looked back and he said it's really... He thought it was more about finding out what he was doing, his movements uh, and things like that. And then out of the blue, he turned up on the 16th of April. And, um, of course, uh, it's in the article... Uh, Amanda related this trip and he, when he turned up, James Whelan was home, the young fella, he was home sick and he gave us a description of the car and he said that Burrell had told him that he'd been to the pistol club at Lithgow. Well, we checked all that out and it was nonsense. He had the meeting with Kerry and then there was a conversation which again is, is in the article and Kerry um, said that it was um, a friend of the family and that's where we, why we looked really hard at him, it was just very unusual and then as it got further along, as the investigation started on Bruce, we, we discovered that being at his father's place and he told his father he was going home to come up on some surveillance. We had electronic surveillance we had operating. His father mentioned to his daughters that Bruce had told him that he was going out to the Macquarie Centre at, at Bride and then he was going to go home. Well, we know, in fact, he went to the, straight to the Whelan's place. And uh, from there, he later he didn't use his mobile phone when he got to the property because it had a security gate. It's in the article. And then no, but went to North Richmond. He alleges he rang the home and got access. Uh, after he'd been there, he travelled back to his father and he made a phone call from down near Ride to his father to ask, tell him that he was coming back to him at Balgala. He didn't go home, so I suspect that that was the day he was going to take her in the in the jag. And then of course we ramped up on the investigation, uh, focused on Bruce, and we really researched him right back to his childhood and that was important so you give you an insight of who you're dealing with when we started looking at him we had a plethora of crime he had uh, stolen vehicles these two stolen cars a weapon 
that Bernie had lent him, he'd reported that it had been stolen. We found that at the house. Yeah. He was just a, a con man, but a, a, a criminal. Was it during this time that you became aware of the earlier disappearance of Dorothy Davis? Yeah, well, when we went public on the 21st of May, shortly after that I got a phone call from uh, Steve Maservi, um, who was a serving officer in the Homicide Squad in the South Region, the city, and he outlined that he'd, been, he'd come up and inquire of Dorothy Davis. So that was pretty early, once we went public. We made inquiries and subsequently we brought... The investigation was being prepared for the coroner's court, of course, been done by uh, local detectives of Maroubra, and we brought the officer in charge, brought them, or brought her onto the uh, strike force, and we, we scooped up the brief and reviewed it, and we went from there. And uh, the, the brief, a lot of the work had been done, but we just did further work to strengthen the, what we saw as he's in, deeply involved in it. Um, you talk about, I said earlier, about putting things in place. I had two other detective sergeants that were, if anything happened to me, like a redundancy, if I, I fell off the chair or went off sick, I had two other sergeants who were looking at each investigation, so it would keep going. We picked up the brief, read it, and there were some things we thought should have been done, and we did. We mm-hmm. read them, and of course we were able to prove that he, he wasn't there on the... His, his alibi wasn't as good as what he made out. And it became significant, the, the phone calls that we found two hours after she'd left the home at Lurlon Bay, he was going down through Minigong. We focused on the property down there, looking to see whether the bodies were on the property, but Inspector Bruce Couch did the major searching for us, and he'd done the Blanglow coordinated that. And uh, I'm same as his view, I don't believe the bodies are on the property. They're certainly down there in the Southern Highlands, but mm-hmm. definitely not. I'm satisfied that with the searching that was done that the bodies aren't down on the property. And it makes sense because if the bodies were found on his property, he was the only one living there and it reflects straight back on me. Let's talk about that property search. You're on a remote property for several days in a very small community and while police are conducting the search, the offender does some odd things. How is something so protracted managed? Chief investigator, you've got a lot to do and you can't do it all yourself, but that's why Bruce Couch and his team came in and they were responsible and I'd signed, uh, we signed a couple of investigators to go down there to be there, to handle anything that come up, and also to do any inquiries uh, in the meantime. But it was interesting, we were there the 21st, uh, the flag went up and the media were um, informed. Well, they'd been informed on the 16th, but kept it quiet for us until the 21st. The search commenced on the 21st, then on the 23rd, by this stage we'd Burrell had been charged with the stolen Pajero and also the Jaguar, and a number of firearms. He had no transport, and because we'd had the uh, surveillance tied up for so long, jobs were building up, and it was all resources, and never we had to let it go. And uh, we didn't. We thought we had him pretty well contained, but then he started ringing around on the twenty third. He wanted, he desperately wanted to get into Goulburn. Obviously, he was ringing neighbours to borrow a vehicle. Anyway, subsequently, he got onto a neighbour and who lent him a vehicle. Well, he drove off, even though the search was on his property, we couldn't stop him at this point, so he drove off on a quad bike. We thought he was just going up to the neighbours, but then he borrowed the car up there and then took it into town. And then when he went into town, we, we didn't have surveillance on him. Then there was a phone call, and I found out about it. I got a phone call f- saying that a phone call received at Crown. call uh, emanated from down there at 9.21 from the uh, telephone box outside the Empire Hotel. Once we got the call, we did reverse check of course and we found out it was the hotel. We had no idea we knew Burrell at that point I'd been informed I rang down 
at the command post down at Bungonia and uh, they informed us that well he'd left the property. It was a pretty gutsy thing to do and he, he went into town and we were suspected at that point that he'd made the call because the information provided in the call to Crown Equipment, to the uh, the secretary or the, who was the receptionist, was that the information could only be known by the kidnappers. The ransom note had not been made public. It was thrown at us later in court. That a smart detective got in the phone box and made the call. Uh, we were able to show that was a joke because he'd, it turned out. I interviewed him on the 15th of June, which is in the article as well. 15th of June, I uh, was sent down there to eliminate the possibility of Kerry ever having got in the JAG because there was three years in the JAG. But while I was there, I had this feeling that we were towards the end of Burrell's cooperation. Even that night, he wanted to see, he wanted to speak to his solicitor and I allowed him to make the phone call. I wanted to take him into Goulburn, but he said, no, I didn't want to go to Goulburn. But by chance, I had a recorder, an tape recorder, so we, we, we interviewed him. I could see, just sitting there, he was very charismatic, Bruce, and always wanted to be seen to be cooperating with the police, so I was happy to accommodate him. He was, he just, I don't, I just got this feeling he didn't want to be seen or caught lying to us. He didn't know whether we had surveillance on him, and he was, his mind was ticking over, I could just see it in him. We went down the path, and I just started, well, you went into town, where'd you go? Tell me where you went. And he actually, uh, he went to the Woolworths, and got two slabs of beer, VB, two cartons. We found a receipt at his home on that day for the two cartons of beer, which was another bit of circumstantial evidence. And then he said uh, from there he went up to the post office and rang his solicitor. Well, the solicitor was only 50, 50 metres, not even 50 metres across the road, in a direct line from the post office. And then they didn't have a time. They opened at nine, and they didn't have a time when he actually rang, but he was one. I think it was the first or second call for the day. And then it was like pulling teeth out of him, where'd you go next? And he took us down to, he went to a phone box, he said down the other end of town, he walked all the way to the other end of the town. And I, I knew I knew the buildings either side of the phone box and the hotel, and the Mayfair Mall was across the road, but allowed him to tell the story as best we could. He said he used the phone box there, it was about 20 minutes after the first call. first call was at 9 o'clock, then 20 minutes after, which fitted in with the call to ground. He put himself in that box... And then asked him about what was nearby, and he said Mayfair Mall. He just couldn't bring himself to say that it was outside the Empire Hotel. And then a couple of days later, we made arrangements for him to come into town. We were going to do it the next day, but he put us off. He came into town and identified the phone box outside the Empire Hotel as the box. Uh, we, were pretty, we were pretty stoked, because at that point we had no idea where he was, and he virtually put himself in the box. And it was thrown up at us at trial that a senior detective had got in the box and made the call. But the problem with that was, well, which phone box? How did they know which phone box to get into to make that call? So that sort of went to the side, pretty much. So that was um, that was uh, significant. We were um, pretty light on up until that point, even though we had a lot of his background information. Yeah, and no, just the brief got stronger and stronger. The matter ends up in court, but it's quite a curious and protracted legal journey and one which is not always guaranteed of getting a final result. Yeah, you're right there. It's always challenging court. We had something like 33 leverage folders of running sheets. Information had been provided by the public or everything was documented so that we could retrieve it. And then from that, we had uh, original documents, which were statements that had been obtained. And we started pulling, putting a brief together. And that would, I think it was nearly five, nearly seven volumes, uh, five for the Whelan and two for the Davis brief. It was such a high-profile public matter, um, even though I felt that a lot of us felt there was enough to 
circumstantially to run it and charge. Uh, it took us a long time to get to that point and uh, I felt that it was uh, probably appropriate that we speak with the DPP and uh, give them the opportunity to review what we had and also ask questions So, in preparation whether or not they thought that there was enough sufficient to uh, proceed. But nothing worse than us just charging and then finding out later that, no, no, we're not going to proceed. And uh, as it turned out, we, we went down that path and we, we, he was only charged with the wheel and matter first. We felt uh, it was the strongest brief, part of the brief. We charged him on the 1st of April 1999. Then we went to committal. That was um, towards the end of 1999. And then we went to our first trial, which I think was 2002, uh, we had a idea, and as a result of the idea, you can imagine the number of witnesses we had with Leverage. It was a huge, huge operation, and, and I had a young man working with me. Uh, he's now Inspector of the Unsolved, Detective Inspector Nigel Warren. He he worked with me. He was, uh, he was in my corner all the time and very knowledgeable, as were other investigators. So we, we went to... Uh, we had the idea. When we went to that first trial, um, Mark Tedeschi... Um, QC was um, unable to appear. He gave the original advising, of course. He was very confident of the matter. And it went to uh, um, another Crown, as matters do happen from time to time. And he was very... Uh, Barry Newport, QC, was very, very capable. There was... Uh, we'd, we'd lost a lot of the circumstances. Some of the circumstantial evidence we tried to get in was inadmissible, ruled inadmissible. You know, as upsetting it might be, you've got to look at the judgment of the uh, courts and, the, and the, his honour that it was just a sully at the time. And that really, those those rulings never really changed. And Mark did, Mark, when he became involved in it, was, was um, pretty uh, forthright and kept on arguing the, the pieces of evidence. And I must say, Mark, the reason Mark couldn't appear in the first trial was because he'd had, he was forced on in the John Newman murder with uh, Sangbo out at, uh, from Karamata, the politician that had been murdered. So um, Mr Newport... Um, he uh, made a recommendation uh, to the director. He was very competent and uh, he was of the view. Uh, there was another thing, the uh, possible sightings. We had uh, volumes of people that had uh, believed that they'd saw Kerry at one point from here all the way up to Queensland. And uh, he had a view that, you know, there was a number of there and I think he was concerned about a number of things. So he he lodged um, a no-bill application, which was to the director and the director no-billed the matter, which was very disappointing. And it was very disheartening, but um, it happens. From a police practitioner's perspective, you've charged a person with murder, but you've not been able to find the body or bodies of the victims. At what stage did you form the belief that Kerry was deceased, and how did that case transition from one of kidnapping to a homicide investigation? Well, you, you know, you've got the ransom note told us that she was going to die if we didn't follow all the procedures and all the secrecy of that. Well, the time had expired in public... At a time when we felt we had no other choice, the concern was early days. My view, um, and it was shortly once we Burrell was identified, if he was if he was involved and he'd pick Kerry up, there's no way he was going to let her go. She could identify him, and even Bernie said to us that he felt that if he hadn't contacted the police and delivered the money, he would have been a victim as well, and I think he would have been. But so as we went along, it was pretty much obvious that Kerry wasn't. And I think um, even the call on the 23rd, they tried to convince receptionist Burrell when he rang Crown, tried to convince her to say, uh, I'll ring, but she's still alive, I'll ring in two weeks' time. And that was all designed to get the police and media nervous and get the police and media away today. Well, there was only one place where the police and media were 
hounding him, and that was down at Goulburn. So it was obvious that as time went on, it was obvious we weren't going to get Kerry back. But we still held hope. You've got to, you know, with the victims, I think you've got to be confident and uh, try and instil in that we're hopeful. And But Bernie was realistic. Um, we were lucky that the senior executive that he was, he was uh, really very strong um, on the outside, but probably breaking up inside. But uh, he was uh, of great support to us uh, all the way through. And uh, I should mention there that even though he was a victim in the early stages, the Commander Mikhail was the assigned the victim care because of they were similar age at that time and uh, allowed us to step back as investigators, as a chief investigator, allowed us to carry on our investigation. And I mightn't have mentioned it before, but he was a priority. He was one of our priorities to look at, look at thoroughly, for whether or not he was involved. Anyone associated with him was involved, and we did. And and people don't realise, but even when they you put someone up on TV, the phone calls start coming in. You get a lot of response, so we looked hard at, at him. But I suppose after we went public, it was and we, we there was no further contact. It was obvious that Kerry was uh, disappeared. Uh, we, as you said, we had no body. So when we started putting the, uh, the brief together, not having no body, it, was, it wasn't there wasn't that many cases uh, prior to the wheel and matter where they'd proceeded with um, investigate uh, with criminal charges where there was no body. You know, it's more so these days with the technology around, you can be traced, you're tracked pretty much. I mean, everything you do, and if you just drop off the well, there's a reason for it. But uh, back then. Um, we, to prove death, we contacted every birth, deaths and marriages Australia-wide, uh, immigration. Uh, Kerry had a lot of future events planned. Her daughter was due to go into hospital. She was ill. There was a number of things that were in place as Bernie and, and Kerry would do to, um, had booked travel overseas. So it was obvious that she hadn't walked off and just uh, decided to leave the family. And what mother leaves uh, a young girl, you know, a teenager, when she's ill and within weeks of her disappearance had surgery. So it painted a picture of, well, we had to paint the picture that she's not alive and she's deceased. So we did that. Uh, Bank account, bank records, you know, she had access to a lot of money and readily, ready access to it that hadn't been touched. So it's all those things that you do in everyday life. If you haven't have a body, you can still prove someone passed away. The big one was, you know, we had the ransom note which said that they were going to kill her. So pretty much, yeah. But it's an important part for a murder charge to prove death. And we, whilst we couldn't prove how she died, we could certainly prove that she she did die. She's dead. As you indicated, the brief was no build, but it did end up back in court. By then, a fair bit of time had passed. How did you continue to manage the brief during this period, presumably when you and your teams were focused on other investigations? When we went to charge, the brief was pretty much done. It would only be further information came in. And as I said to you before, uh, Nigel Warren, detective, he was um, Detective Senior Constable, then he's now Detective Inspector. He, he worked with me, a, a number of other police, but as we move forward, people get promoted and they move on and, and you've got to allow for that. I still had courage. I had all the information and Nigel managed it for, for me in the office. I tried to help him where we could. We, we did a further search after it was no build. We... We did a further search down in the Bungonia uh, National Park. It was just so remote we couldn't get to it when we did the searches because of the, the terrain, but we thought it important to go and do it just to make sure that we'd done it all. So Nigel had carriage with me. I, I was always available. 
Uh, but the brief had predominantly done. Nigel helped me with... He, he did all the witnesses for the court, a heap of witnesses. We had, had arranged the, for them to be flying in, and we had to have so many witnesses each day. That in itself is a nightmare. We, we didn't have any problems. Um, Nigel was very capable. Um, he was my guru, but we, um, in terms of technology. <laughs> and uh, we had an incident, the crime would come up to one trial and the, the eagle eye system crashed. Uh, that was good. What the experts at the tech, they were copied it all over onto CDs and we were able to search it just manually. So that we got through, we got by, but we also had all the records down there because people forget, uh, my, or your colleagues, our colleagues in the police, we get hit with subpoenas like you wouldn't believe. And you'd imagine the length of the subpoenas. And we, we, because it was a circumstantial case, it was important that we provided them with as much information as we could. We didn't have anything to hold back. It was only methodology and a few other things that we fought, and there was no problems. It was they went to court, but it was huge. I guess the other big problem was we'd been giving evidence. We had the magistrates' court, then we had the trial, first trial in the Supreme Court, no build. Then I, I took it to the coroner's court, and the reason you see it was no build, and I thought we well, we got all this evidence, all the one my view, uh, circumstantial evidence, and it was such a public matter, I thought, well, perhaps the coroner could be some time before that matter even got back into the courts. I thought perhaps the coroner should hold an inquest under the disappearance of these women. And that's, uh, we went before Mr Abernathy, and uh, he he was happy to run an inquest for the families as well. And we had Mark Hobart, SC, he was private counsel. He was asked to represent the coroner, uh, him and Kate Follett solicitor from the Crown Solicitor's Office. They did a great job. So we went through that. And then when we come back and we finally got a, a retrial, talking about management, well, the transcripts of the trial, my transcripts were quite significant because once, even though we got the coronial inquiry over and done with, we then went back to the director and when he issued the ex officio indictments, then we had a court proceedings to stop further prosecutions, um, stay of proceedings application. And that was in the box for about a week with that four or five days. So then further transcripts. The stay of proceedings, obviously it's a case of the other side trying to stop you proceeding. They, well, this was after the uh, ex officio indictments. They wanted to, they didn't want the... There was two arguments. One was uh, the no billing by the director. They questioned that and they called the Crown Prosecutor, Barry Newport. They, they recalled, uh, they called Barry Newport. He had to give evidence. And very rarely you see a Crown Prosecutor having to give evidence, but... We went through all the stay, the stay proceedings and then it pretty much um, was ruled the matter should proceed. Again, the information went before um, the courts, the evidence that had been disallowed before. It was argued again by Mark. Mark always kept going back and trying to get pretty much what the decisions originally made were what was held all the way through. So there was a lot of the stay proceedings, uh, transcripts from the stay proceedings, and then we went to, we finally got to trial. Of course, the, we did a three-month trial in August 2005 and we, um, we got a hung jury after about 10 days, I think it was. Sitting in court and watching the jurors, the female jurors were crying. I thought, oh, my God, what's going on here? And uh, trying to read the jury. And I thought, oh, they might be crying about the, the gravity of the, the, the case, what they've been exposed to. But there was things going on in the jury room that later come out a bit in the paper. And uh, it was very sad, but from that, that case, the government later legislated um, majority verdicts. That didn't help us. It didn't help us at all. So we then went uh, another trial in March 2007, and again we, we thought we were in trouble with the jury, and, 
Anyway, they come back in and found him guilty, unanimous. It was great, a great relief, great relief for the family and for us to, to, you know, we've been through a fair bit. But then, then it went to the High Court, or the Court of Criminal Appeal first, and from the Court of Criminal Appeal to the High Court. Yeah, then it got remitted back, comment, some evidence, and the matter had to be reheard. So they reheard it. Which court? Uh, yeah, the Court of Criminal Appeal. They reheard the matter, and it was a unanimous decision in the Court of Criminal Appeal. Well, there was no publicity allowed because of the publicity that happened mm-hmm. over time. And then in 2007, the Davis matter proceeded, and we again, we, we thought we were in trouble, but the, um, the majority verdicts could be implemented. However, we got a unanimous verdict there as well. So um, you can imagine the number of transcripts that were developed. So you talk about managing managing witnesses, you've got to manage, you can't do it all yourself. Um, and we had agents, we had specialist teams within the department that looked after bringing witnesses, flying them in or arranging for their travel. So that, we're just coordinating all that. But yeah, it was interesting times. I can imagine. The issue of family management. In this case, you had to manage the relations with the families of the victims for a protracted period. What lessons did you learn and what lessons are there for police to learn in similar situations? Victim care is very important and more so in this sort of inquiry. But there's sometimes you've got to hold back information. And as I said earlier about Bernie, um, Inspector Mikhail was assigned the role of victim care for Bernie because of the age. But it was very important that we also pulled back, but we were able to stand back and watch everything that was going on and, and keeping him briefed, but also allowing us to do our job and not have to tell him everything that we know. You might think that's harsh, but it's not harsh. It's a reality that... It's not, not uncommon for um, the, the husband, so to speak. And many people have said to me, oh, do you look at the husband? And, and I've said many times we gave him a thorough checking over and uh, it wasn't until a little bit later once we were happy. He was, uh, yeah, we got on very well. And uh, as I said, he was a great supporter, but it's so important. And for the Davis, the Davis family, I think they, they got upset and you've got to be careful because there was, although there was two investigations, one had been run its course pretty much. We had the investigator, a female sergeant, who she was, she'd been in contact with the victim, and we met met with them and tried to keep them informed as well. But uh, you've got to be careful with what you do. Um, and they got there was times when they they felt that I think the Davis family felt that they weren't uh, getting the same attention as the Wheelers because Mr. Whelan put up the reward for both women originally, and I can understand that. And but there's so much going on. But it is terribly important that they keep informed. And through the trial process, we had the families and they were, they were there at the court most of the time. We kept them brief. Bernie had three children and, and he had one of his sons um, played rugby union and broke his neck. I've never seen a man have so much tragedy in his life. I went and visited him at um, Royal North Shore after the, it was very sad. And I've seen him recently and he's, he's going really well. So... I keep in touch with the families these days. Not so much the Davis family. They've, they want their privacy, but they have my number. They want to ring. But I, I do talk to Kerry's brother, Bernie's past now. So, yeah, I think it's important that Chief Investigator or someone appropriate from the strike force deal with the families. It's very important. They have a right to know. But sometimes there's things we can't tell them. You know, we've got to respect, um, respect them and they've got to respect a bit what we've got to do. But um, overall, um, no, I think we did a reasonable job. I'm sure there's always room for improvement or anything, but they, uh, they called me uh, Uncle Dennis. The Whelans called me Uncle Dennis, the family, but I don't know whether that was... <laughs> but, uh, they were a lovely family. Look, 
they were terribly, uh, both families were decent families, law-abiding families, and they've had this fellow do this um, crime on, on, that, on both families and it, they've suffered immeasurably. Any other lessons you took out of these cases which are particularly relevant for police in today and into the future? Documenting every piece of evidence, or not evidence, every, every information. If you're going to take on a major crime or you're going to take on any crime, you're going to end up in a, in a jurisdiction, whether it's coroner's court, local magistrate's court, district court or the Supreme Court. You've got to be able to show that you've done the investigation has been thorough and you don't, don't discard information that comes in. You document it, you act on it and you make sure the inquiry... The, inquiries eliminated. If it's not eliminated, it's still there. It was the same with looking at Bruce. We got to a stage where we couldn't really prove that he was involved, so you go the other way and you try and disprove his involvement. Well, we couldn't do it. We had, everything time we turned around, we had something where it was obvious that he was, you know, he had the, he had the two cars, and then we found a, a photo of a um, blue, blue and white Suzuki, and uh, we had a bit of a media release on that, and then we got a phone call, and that turned up at a car dealer out of Orange, and we pursued that and found there was another stolen car. The motor's operandi was all the same, but you've got to... Uh, and you've got to set the systems up, I mentioned earlier. You've got to have them up and running so that everyone knows. And then the chief investigator, he's got to make sure that if you're tasking people, that people are firstly are capable of undertaking that particular inquiry, and secondly, that uh, they're well briefed on what you what your expectations and where they can go and find the information amongst all the running sheets. I mean, we had, as I said, 33 volumes of running sheets. I had an analyst. Um, I had a, a TIMS operator. But, you know, there's one one sad thing with all this, of course, and it's always, is the file. We, we couldn't, we never got the women, the two bodies back. It's very sad for the families. I'm hopeful, hopeful that one day the bodies are found and we can give them back to the families for, for a proper burial. And uh, it really affects the families. They, they, they just wanted to go get her back, carry her back, and we and you've got to keep that in mind too. You know what's right for the family, but at the end of the day, you can't let a dual killer or a serial killer keep running around on the streets. Before we finish, Dennis, is there anything you wanted to specifically mention? Look, I probably talked a lot, and it was a huge, huge investigation. And oh yeah, I can talk most of it off of the top of my head only because of it's been reinforced over so long. It's been 25 years this year. But I, I work with some great people. I didn't do it all. I don't think we mentioned, it's in the article, the dot point documents. They were, when we when they, the guys found them, that was a boost. Uh, and it, it just it outlined the, the plan and the, and the ransom note uh, by um, Detective Sergeant Brian Malloy found them. And I don't think we, we got criticised because we took took all the paper out of the house and reviewed it at the at the police station, but had we not done it that way, I think we probably would have missed, might have, may have missed it. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't a; these were on top of a pad. It was they were hidden inside a different location inside the pad. So, if there was one thing I may do differently is if we were to do the property again, we'd stay at the property and, and make sure everything was in terms of rather than take it out, just go through it bit by bit, spend your time, and have the scientific there with you to do it. So we we photographed, videoed everything in place, and then. We slowly collected it all and researched it later. Overall, it was a great experience. I had good people working for me. They were dedicated and committed. I think there was about 23 investigators. Specialist units were all there. We just don't go and interview people. There's other things that had to be done. COVID entries, supporting operations in the field, surveillance, electronics. It's uh, wide-ranging and it all come together on the day. And it was very professional in my view. Your thoughts about Burrell? 
He's just a con man. He was a con man, manipulator, could be very charismatic and charming, but there was an arrogance. People described him in the workplace. They didn't like him because he, he was a sloth, didn't work, lazy, some of those words. And we know that he was a bit of a con man. He tried to get another woman, elderly woman, up at Townsville she was a friend of the family and he flew up there and uh, tried to con her into giving handing over large sums of money trying to buy diamonds and she just said it was she'd uh, experienced businesswoman said it was it was just uh, laughable and she she didn't fall for it but that that was Bruce he was just a, even when we were dealing with him he just wanted to be seen as a nice guy I think he probably told one too many lies as they all do and uh, he dug a hole for himself but he could be very charming and charismatic also looked at him in his previous um, marriages. Marriage. There were things that had happened there where money had been stolen or jewellery had been stolen and other things which I don't, won't go into. But uh, yeah, he was just um, a con man. How was he with you when you dealt with him? Uh, he was alright. Like he, as I said to you, he was trying to. He was try- The whole time we were dealing with him, um, he was uh, quite open and friendly with us. It was just a bit sickening, but we knew what the game was. We let him. Yeah, okay, we kept him outside as long as we could. But the time come when I think he realised he was in trouble and um, all he would say is you know, on legal advice. Uh, I think he declined to answer a lot of questions that went to the coroner's court with uh, Mr Hobart. There was some number of, we just said, declined to answer on legal advice. But that was Bruce. He was innocent, they're all innocent. Sad thing, he, he was never going to uh, tell us where the bodies were. Bruce is like a psychopath. Sociopath, sorry, like a sociopath, and they make decisions, but then they don't really follow. They don't think of what they've done, what they're doing, or plan it properly, and then it comes back and bites. I mean, that's pretty much Bruce. He done a lot of planning. It didn't work out the way he hadn't thought it through properly. Dennis, thanks again for your time. It's really appreciated. My pleasure. Nice to meet you, Jason. That was retired Detective Chief Inspector Dennis Bray, and his article "Crueler Than Murder" is in the September 2022 issue of the Australian Police Journal. You can subscribe to the journal by going to www.apjl.com.au and clicking on the subscribe button. Subscribers receive online and hard copies of the journal and access to our extensive online catalogue of almost 300 past issues. Until next time, take care.